Good morning, everyone. Let the uh, maybe that's the calm before the storm. <laughs> I love these kids; they're awesome, and they're totally fine. Hey, if you're a parent of uh, especially little kids, man, if you want them to sit, it's totally fine. Uh, we kind of mandated that our kids, when they were young, sit with us as uh, as long as uh, they weren't throwing Legos at people in church. Just uh, glad to be here. Um, a couple of quick things I would like to say before we fire off. One, uh, <clears throat> I want to really reemphasize something that David mentioned. And it's not just that if you're new and you're a visitor, but the, the edge of the bulletin has this connection card piece to it. And if you're new and you're a visitor or you've been here a couple times, man, we'd love it if you'd fill that out. But uh, for those of us that attend here regularly, this is an awesome way to help people connect into the church. So uh, I'm actually just, don't ignore the thing that's in your bulletin uh, because maybe we know you uh, and you know us and, and you're plugged in. Use that as a way to help the body, uh, the rest of us in leadership especially. We, talk, we talked about this Tuesday night. I was asking the rest of the elders, do we need to like, create a spreadsheet and a Rolodex for all the new people that are coming? Because it's like two, three, four different couples almost every week, which is awesome and we're we're grateful, and if this is your first week or first couple weeks, uh, we're super excited that you're here, and we don't think that's by accident, but um, we'd also like to, uh, to uh, <clears throat> uh, deepen those connections, and, and it's just been awesome to see these uh, relationships grow, uh, especially with new people, and, and some of you guys are here and, and, uh, today, and, and we think that that's awesome. Uh, by the way, uh, and before I get into the next thing, I would like to say, yesterday was an awesome awesome event out at the lake. It really was. Uh, uh, of course, John David reeling in this whopper of a fish. Uh, uh, I did not fish. I didn't go fishing. I was kind of part of the support group. My job, Josh and I kind of just our job is really kind of yell from the shore these, you know, biblical encouragements like, throw the net on the other side. Throw, throw it on the other side, see what happens. Or, or hey, <clears throat> find the one with the coin in its mouth. You know that biblical story, you know? Look for the one with the coin in the mouth. Look for that one. And actually, we weren't far off with that idea because as I understand it, there's actually, isn't there like a fish in Wade's Lake that has a tag on it? It's worth actually money? Like cold hard cash? Now your state's not going to reimburse you with Bitcoin. That ain't it. But you might be able to, am I wrong in that? Where's Bill at? He knows all these things. Is that true? There's tagged fish in the lake. So our biblical encouragement was not far off. And so we just were kind of just standing around like trying to be that support crew. It was awesome. And there was a lot of moving pieces and a baby shower and all that was going on. <clears throat> but I want to tell you about the most, uh, the, the cutest, the cutest thing that I saw yesterday was a picture of Arthur LaRue taking a nap, hanging over the sun. He was wiped out. And as Tony's fishing, and then they're in the boat, and he's arm over the edge, dragging in the water. Now that's a Jesus moment, taking a nap on the water, right? Isn't that right? It's awesome. So it was a great time. It was awesome. Bill did a phenomenal, Bill and Tim, and whoever was involved with all the organization piece, I know it was mostly spearheaded by Bill and, and Tim Gower, and uh, they just did a phenomenal job. It was a great time, and everybody had a lot of fun. And so uh, we're looking forward to doing it again. Okay.
that part's done, that part's done. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Mom, happy Mother's Day. I've got witnesses. Amen? Happy Mother's Day, right? I want to share with you, I want to share, there, there's, there can be this kind of like overwhelming feeling on Mother's Day because everybody's like, hey, I can't talk from Proverbs 31, talk with Proverbs 31. There's actually a verse in Proverbs 31 that often gets overlooked, and it's the very first, very first verse about the topic of a wife and about the mother. And I only want to just refer to it. We're not going to preach from Proverbs 31 today. We're going to go back into Psalms. But I did want to bring out this, this concept, that the diamond that's on your side, fellas, the diamond that's on your side is... Super important. Super important. I, I would venture to say that the diamond that's on your side, your wife, okay, we'll put it in that regard, she biblically is, is, is priceless. She's priceless. And the diamond that's on her finger is a reflection, and it should be a reflection for us husbands and fathers, and we should be teaching this definitely to our boys and to other men, that the diamond that's on her finger is a reflection of the fact that she is the, the precious, precious stone that God has given you. Amen, ladies? Amen, ladies? Is that right? Fellas, just putting you on notice. Let's look at the verse real quick. I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking about. Verse 10 and 11. Who can find a virtuous wife? For, the wor- for her worth is far above rubies. The question is rhetorical. For her worth is far above rubies. That's the fact that she's more valuable. She should be so valuable to you men. She's, her worth is far above precious stones, far above rubies, Proverbs says. And then he says this. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. Your relationship with your wife, fellas, our relationship with our wives and the mother of our children should be so, so, so important to us that we trust her. We trust her. I'll never forget, as, as, our, farming, as our kind of farming business grew, uh, we had a pretty significant purchase, piece of equipment that we bought. And, uh, and, and we had saved up and saved up and saved up and uh, we weren't married a long time at this point, but, uh, but I wanted to make a, a, a valuable point, and I handed the checkbook to Tammy and said, you write the check. It's from both of us. I mean, our name's on the, you know, on the same account. But it was a valuable lesson to, to push onto her that she's valuable to me in all that we do. It's not just me going over here and doing my thing, and, and she does her thing, and there's this massive disconnect. That's not it at all that we're in this thing together. And she said, I've never wrote a check this big. Remember that? I never wrote a check this big. Ah. Just sign the bottom. It's good. We're good to go. Happy Mother's Day. That's all I'm going to say about that. We're going to celebrate Mother's Day, and I don't want to keep us all here a long time because of that, because we need to get out and spend time with our, our wives and our mothers, and uh, super excited to celebrate the day. We have been looking at a variety of different uh, books, uh, songs out of the book of Psalms, and uh, we've looked at the first one. We actually talked about it a little bit yesterday at the, at the uh, men's breakfast portion of the fishing day. 
So we've looked at Psalm 1, we've looked at Psalm 11. Today we're turning to our attention to a psalm that's written in perhaps one of the greatest moments of the nation of Israel's history. That great moment was this. It was the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem during the reign of King David. Uh, you can find that in your, in your own Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, but this psalm reveals an even, kind of an even greater story. It reveals a, a, a bigger narrative, as it were. And to quote Spurgeon, the eye of the psalmist looked, however, beyond the typical upgoing of the ark to the sublime ascension of the king of glory. Uh, in other words, it, it wasn't just that they were, they were you know, transporting uh, the, the ark, the, the place where God said, this is where my presence is going to be amongst my people. It wasn't just that they were transporting it. It was finally getting into Jerusalem. It wasn't just that. It wasn't just a physical thing. It was really the ascension. The ascension of the... Now, when we say ascension, that's, this is, can be taken a multitude of ways, and it should be. It's an ascension as far as Jerusalem's on a hill, so, so everything coming to Jerusalem has to go up. There's an ascending physically, that's true. It was the ascension of the King of Glory, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, and in a relational sense. And that dynamic is true for us as well. The ascension of God as the King of Glory in our lives is paramount into following Him, into trusting Him, there's a sense in which these truths and the description of God are in a general kind of a widespread type of a way. Uh, the question that we should ponder today is not whether these are accepted truths in a general sense, though. The question really that we're going to start out with this morning is, are these truths a personal reality? Are these truths a personal reality? So we, can put, we can put the truths in God's Word in general categories and in a general sense and how they overlay for the nation of Israel or even how they overlay for the church. We can do that in general terms. But the reality is, is that, is that a, a true of your relationship with God? Is there a, is there a connection, not a, not a general sense with a disconnection to how it affects me personally, how, it, how, it, how God impacts me personally? Is it true that that connection is, is personal? Because otherwise it just is, is ethereal. It's just out there. It's kind of general and broad and kind of just applies kind of to everybody. But no, God is saying this is true relationally. Are these truths a ruling reality in our lives. Let's jump right there. Psalms chapter 25. We'll jump right in the first verse where David says, the earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness, the world and all who dwell in them. Psalm 24 verse 1. Isn't that a wonderful statement of the totality of God's rule over creation? The earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's, he says. Similar to Psalm 11.1, where David comes right out with this statement of putting his trust in the Lord. Here he's saying, the earth is the Lord's. It's his possession. Everything on the earth is God's possession. We have this massive proclamation here in Psalm 24 of God's ownership of creation. What is David saying? He's saying, hey, the planet... The planet, the earth is the Lord's. Only earth was created with 
and God created everything in the universe and beyond. But only the earth was created with the perfect specifications to host and to sustain life. And all that we know, and as far as we've looked, and as great as you know, science has gotten us out into beyond the beyond, beyond the clouds, they've never found a single place. They found a few elements here. They found a little this, that, there. But they've never found a place that was so specifically designed to host life. So the earth is the Lord's. The planet is the Lord's. And not only is the planet the Lord's, David says that there's valuable assets. Where he says the earth is the Lord's there in verse 1. And all of its fullness. All of its fullness. What what does that mean? What does it mean, the fullness of the earth? It's really a pretty all-encompassing statement. The riches of the earth are almost impossible to list. Uh, Timeless treasures of gold, silver, other metals. Uh, those are part of that fullness. Uh, diamonds, precious stones are part of that fullness. They have value. They've had really uh, eternal value. In a sense, they've always been worth something more than something else in that way, and people work hard to get it. Uh, maybe it means that the variety of harvests that mankind have done since the dawn of time, the harvesting of grain and fruit and vegetables the harvesting of, of cattle and, and preparing for winter season is like what we do around here, hunting season. And uh, the uh, often, often uh, overlooked pleasure of butchering a hog. You're not going to find that statement in a lot of sermons. I'll just tell you that. But that's a sense of harvesting. That's a sense of harvesting out of the fullness of the earth. You, you wouldn't be able to do that on Mars, would you? Like, anybody seen a pig on Mars other than cartoons? No. Because we don't know that they're there. They're not there. They couldn't live there. It's not possible. So there's a sense of fullness that, the, that David says here in Psalm 24. There's a sense of fullness that is the Lord's. The, and there's an aspect of this that we see now a couple thousand years, more than a couple thousand years since this was written. Uh, several thousand years later. What do I mean? Some of the greatest discoveries through world history would not have meant much had they been discovered in a different era. What good would uh, crude oil do in the first century? It would do some good, I'm sure. They would probably find a way to burn it and have some light. So it would probably have some value. But it's not going to do what it does today and, and, and literally move the global economy around the world. The shipping and transportation and, and uh, the pleasure of people going on vacation and going to work every day. It's not going to, it would not have had that effect then. What about things on the periodic table, uranium and radium and some of those types of things? Had they been discovered in the first century, uh, they would be like, what's this, you know? How is this important? In the 19th and 20th century, these these items are huge. Huge. Countries have gone to war, are at war over this type of stuff. 
There's a global battle that's happened since the 40s, really, the late 40s, early 50s, over these elements, really, and how they can be used in warfare. So they mean a lot to us, but they wouldn't have really meant much the first few centuries. What about electricity? What about some of the other things that we enjoy? What about electricity? That would have been an interesting thing. The only electricity they had in the first century was whatever uh, lightning bolt they would see on occasion, I suppose. But our electricity is huge, right? Our electricity does all kinds of things from the lights to the instruments to, to everything. It's, in, it's infused into every aspect of our lives except for the part where we're you know, out hunting unless you're cheating and using some little gizmo to make sure that you're not on the neighbor's property. Even that uses electricity. But uh, electricity, as we know it, in a different era would be completely different. But you have to come back and say, these things and many, many, many more are really the fullness, the fullness, big part of the fullness of God's creation. And God's ownership over the earth is way bigger, far bigger than even that. He goes on to talk about the world and the people. God's ownership extends to the people that live on the earth as well. And we are the only part of creation that bears the image of God and has eternity stamped on our hearts, mankind is. If you want a footnote for that, uh, dive in and look at Genesis chapter 1 or Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, in order, the, the image of God, we're created in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1, and the idea that, that eternity is stamped on the hearts of mankind comes out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so <clears throat> that's part of that fullness, that's part of that ownership that God has. Through the rights of creation and the continuing provision God has a claim on every person who's ever lived. Uh, we don't often think about it that way, uh, but it's true. There's, a, there's an aspect to him claiming everybody that's ever lived. Verse 2 goes on to say, For he has founded it upon the seas, talking about uh, the ownership of the earth. He's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. God has the right to the earth and all who dwell in it because he's created both. Specifically, David here is looking back at, as he was taught, the creation accounts in Genesis chapter 1 and remembers the creation of the land in the midst of the earth's waters on the third day of creation. You find that in Genesis chapter 1 too if you're looking for the idea of him bearing the image of God. But I wanted to bring up this idea. Isn't it interesting? I didn't think about this until I was kind of studying through this. David probably never went more than 100 miles from where he was raised, likely. Maybe, maybe, maybe a couple hundred. That, that, that locks him into a pretty small circle that he's experienced personally in his life, especially up to the point that he wrote this psalm. He never had the pleasure of flying over the Pacific Ocean. He never had the experience of being out in the North Atlantic. They didn't know what was, what was beyond their circle, yet, yet David Lee rightly, rightly brings out solid theology as he writes this psalm. Never saw a body of water bigger than the Mediterranean Sea. Never had the chance to look at a map 
of the earth, or he never had the chance to sit there as we used to do in grade school and spin the globe, right? Never had that chance, yet his theology was rock solid. Because his, his theology, his understanding, was not based in, you know, some, what somebody else had said and somebody else's injected theory on how the world was created. His theology was based straight out of Genesis chapter 1. It's actually really a great reminder for us, even coming in the midst of a psalm. He knew creation, he knew the creation account, that the water dominated the surface of the earth, and land was, as he said, founded it upon, that God founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And David makes perfect case for God's possession of the earth and the people of the earth. In light of that, then he asked this question, the next verse, chapter, verse 3, who then may ascend to, into the hill of the Lord? In light of God's sovereign ownership of the earth and all that live upon it, David wondered exactly who has the right to stand before God. This wasn't about the mountain climbing or hill ascending and trying to clamber up some rocks, but about the right to come before God. Or who may stand in his holy place? Here David's clarifying, bringing a clarifying second question into the, to the audience. He says, who may stand in his holy place. David asks, who has the right to stand before God at his holy temple? In his holy place. You know, a lot has changed through our own history. A lot has changed uh, that many of us have never experienced, depending upon what generation we were born into. Uh, many of you younger, I was, and I'm, <laughs> don't tell anybody, I'm just a couple of weeks from 50, so I want to categorize myself still with the younger people. People that are old like Tony already, already crested it. Freewheeling down the other side. Amen? Oh, you have two more weeks? Oh, I have two more weeks. But you're already 50, right? <laughs> he's, he's holding the rope over the top of the hill. Let me back. No. What I'm getting at here What I'm getting at here is that many, many of us uh, live in a time and place where the wrong question is asked. And I would like to say that I'm even a part of that, and Tony's part of that generation too. There was a time, there was a big period of time in the history of mankind where this was a solitary question that people addressed, that people wanted the answer to. And this is the question, what does it take to be right with God? Many, many over the centuries have, have, have pondered, and that was a, a, a prevailing question, kind of come to, you know, came and went throughout history. It was up, it was down. But there was a time where that was forefront on people's minds. What does it take to be right with God? How can I know that I'm right with God. How do, I, how, how, how do I know? Is it what I do? Is it where I go? Is it how I behave? Is it things that I say? How do I know that I'm right with God? And I think one of the saddest things about history uh, in this regard, and, and where I'm going with this, is, is that for the last probably several generations, 
I will say, the question has changed from how do I be right with God to what makes me happy? What, what makes me happy? How, how, can I, how can I be fulfilled? It's not about how can I be right with God. It's what gratifies me. What makes me happy? What makes me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm important? What makes me feel, you know, that, that there's worth to my existence? That's the questions. Those are the questions that are out there and have been out there for a long time. And many of us, many of us, don't know a, a, a life and an existence without that being the primary question in our culture. And I'm here to say that we have to go back. We have to take people back. We have to explore this question. What does it take to be right with God? This is what David is saying. Who may stand in his holy place? Who can be right with God? David not only asked an important question, but he asked the most important question. I'm not minimizing and saying personal happiness is, is unimportant. Don't get the wrong idea here. Uh, but it cannot supersede being in the right relationship with God. If, if we put our personal happiness above what's more important, or what, what the Bible says is more important of being right with God, <clears throat> we're going to come at, or people are going to come at life with this slanted view where they're chasing the wrong end. They're chasing the wrong end. So not only does he ask an important question, he really asks the most important question. What does it take to be right with God? What does the moral, moral character look like of someone that God receives? David already established that God ruled the earth. Now he declared that God ruled the earth on this idea, a moral foundation. God's ruling the earth. His ownership of the earth, his care of the earth, his care for us, his people, is based on not some, you know, general concept that's just out there, but it's based on a moral foundation. Our morality, mankind's morality is important to God. That's what we're getting at. And that so he rules, he is ownership is from that perspective from that spot. He's concerned about the moral behavior of mankind. So David goes on to talk about that a little bit in verse 4. Back to verse 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? David answers those questions by bringing us these points. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Many of you know of a chorus that we sing in church that talks about the, that, that's right from verse 4, chapter 24 of Psalms. Give us pure hands, clean hands, pure heart. Let us not lift our souls to another. It's the words of that chorus. So let's look at these for just a few minutes before we get out of here. The idea of clean hands, the idea of clean hands really is wrapped around our actions. Uh, there's biblical examples of people with clean hands. Pontius Pilate cleaned his hands. The Pharisees that Jesus uh, was constantly being, you know, rebuffed from, uh, you know, from, they were all about washing their hands. But were they clean? 
when Pontius Pilate washed his hands and dried them, and, you know, I'm washing my hands of this thing. Was he really clean? No. No. We know the answer to this question. They weren't clean. In response to being questioned about his disciples and eating food without washing their hands, Jesus said this in Mark 7, 15, There's nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. It's not about being a germaphobe. It's not about living in a tight-knit, you know, bubble-wrapped existence so that, we, so that we never get sick or we don't experience, you know, the dangers. And I'm not saying that we should live flippantly in that sense. I'm not going way, you know, falling off the horse on the other side. But Jesus' own words, Jesus' own words are, hey, it's not what's on the outside. It's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that makes a difference. What's on the inside is going to affect then the outside, the actions. So clean hands paired with that, paired with our actions, because our actions are really determined by our hearts. So David says pure heart. Pure heart. Our TIA, I'm not talking about mini strokes. <laughs> our TIA if you want a little acronym to go with. When it comes to our pure hearts, David's talking about, and I believe the Lord's talking about through David here, our thoughts, our intentions, and our attitudes. Thoughts, intentions, and attitudes are, are how the purity of our heart is expressed. Right? And then that flows out through our actions. The things that we meditate on, the things that we think about, the, the, the attitude that we have about things, good or bad, right? The thoughts that we have, what we meditate on. The Word says take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's how important our thoughts are to God. Take every thought captive. Having a thought that's, that's, that's birthed out of hatred or envy. You're having a lustful thought. You're having a, a, a thought that goes cross-grained to the, to the character of God. Paul says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Like, all right, I need to think about it. Well, that's not good. Here you go. I'm going to stop right there with that thought. Because that thought, when I meditate on that thought, right? I, when I have intentions about that thought, when I have an attitude about that thought, it's going to affect my heart. And when it's affecting my heart, it's going to affect my actions. And I'm going to start down a slippery trail. I'm going to start doing things that I wouldn't normally do because I'm thinking about things that are not pure, not godly. Philippians talks about this. Meditate on these things. Meditate on these things. That's why one of the, probably the smallest, shortest quote I'll ever give you, Charles Spurgeon says this, is that true religion is hard work. True religion, true relationship with God not just showing up here on Sunday, not just, you know, putting, you know, in, in some involvement, a little extra involvement in Christianity. That's not what he's talking about. True religion, true relationship with God is heart work. And let's be honest, sometimes it's really hard work. It's hard work. And I'm not talking about our aspect of it even. 
I'm talking about God's aspect of it because our hearts can be real stony, real rigid. We can have aspects of our lives and, and rooms in our lives that are locked solid, bolted down, don't want God to go there, don't want God to fix that, you know. And it's hard work in that way because it's hard work. It's hard work. We generally get the uh, action concept of avoiding idols and, uh, in a practical sense, but the third one that David lists here is not lift our souls to an idol. The, <clears throat> the person that can enter into God's holy place is one that rejects idolatry uh, by their actions, and, and it's the man or woman that rejects idolatry internally. Don't lift your soul to an idol. Don't, 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 don't put all of your stock, don't, don't put all of your worship, don't put all of your... This is the best word to, and the best way to look at it, is to trust. The idea here is to trust, right? Because the things that we really believe inside that are true, the things that we believe down to our core, the things that we believe in our, however you want to categorize it, in our heart or in our soul, those are the things we're going to categorize, we're going to place some trust with those things. What David's saying is, is that a person that can draw close to God, a person that is in a right relationship with God, that can draw near to God in his, on his holy hill or in his temple, it says, is a person that avoids, that has disciplined themselves, that sees the spiritual value in not, oh, I'm not going to open that door. I'm, I'm not going to open that door because that door leads to a world of idolatry. So avoid that. It's a somebody that does not lift up their heart, or he says their soul, into idolatry. What does it mean to reject idolatry in the soul? Actually, if you flip over to the next psalm, we're in Psalm 24, verse, what, 3, 4? If you look actually at Psalm 25, 1, uh, uh, they give us a real clear answer, and this is what I talked about, the idea of trust. Psalm 25.1 says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. I trust in you. I'm here to tell you, if that's a reality in your life, if that's a reality, a daily lived out reality, <clears throat> and you'll be tested on this reality, and you will experience pushback against this reality, pushback from the enemy, you will experience temptation, but if, but if 25-1 is a reality in our lives, idolatry is not so much then of an issue, because you're saying, and you're living, and you're believing at the innermost part of you, you're saying, God, you're most important. You're most important. So whatever comes against that, I, I'm just going to push away. I'm, I'm going to reject. I'm going to say no. I'm going to, and it's not just about me personally. We're going to do this in our families. We're going to do this in our marriages. We're going to do this with our kids. And we're going to teach them. And we're going to live and express this idea that we're going to say no to idols. And we're going to say yes to God. That's what David's getting at. That's the type of person that can have relationship with God. That's the type of person that God is looking for and, and building up. And, and this is why Him molding our character becomes sometimes extremely painful. Because we all know that this is true. 
We all know that we've lived, you know, I'll use myself, some close to 50 years, and, and now all of a sudden after 50 years of life pattern, I come to the, I come to the understanding that, that what I've been doing now, this small piece or this aspect of my life is idolatry. It hurts, it's painful to come to even to that understanding. And the change out that God does in the heart and the reality of how that's played out for the rest of our lives, it becomes less painful. But the realization, the, the understanding when we come to that, that heart work that God does, it's painful. And I'll tell you the thing that makes it more painful, and it makes it painful for everybody around you, is resistance. Is resistance. Resisting the work of God in our hearts and clinging on to something that we're idolizing. And it can be anything. It can be an object. It can be a person. It can be a relationship. It can be uh, your reputation. It can be, I mean, there's a lot of things that are idolatrous things in our lives. They're not necessarily a physical object. Maybe you idolize how people compliment you. Maybe you idolize the idea that you can just be off in your own world and not around people, and that's like your thing because you don't want to deal with people. But the reality is God keeps bringing you back in, into these relationships where sometimes there's friction and you, God's saying, ha, 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 don't idolize your solid, solitude. You need to learn to be relational. So get over it. Let's rub off the edges. Let's work with it. There's a lot of things that can be something that's an idol in our lives. And it's heart work. And it's hard. Resistance makes it harder. Surrender to the Lord. Surrender to the Lord makes it easier. We're conditioned to think, we've been raised to think, that the way to deal with an issue is to go full steam ahead. And there's an aspect that that's actually good and right and true. But when it comes to matters of changing our hearts, it really comes down to simply this. Are you going to surrender? Am I going to surrender my heart in this matter to the Lord? The way to victory is to surrender. We talk, I talked to, Jim and I talked, had a little conversation yesterday. We talked about this. The way to victory over these types of things, uh, idolatry, uh, you know, unclean hearts, uh, all of these types of things. The way to victory, the way to victory when it comes especially to idolatry is actually just a surrender to the Lord. You're going to surrender to His ways. You're going to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And in saying yes to you, then He empowers us by the Holy Spirit to say, nope, I'm not going to go there. Nope, I'm not going to open up that door into my life because that door is, that's bad. That's bad. This is good. God says, follow me. Okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to avoid idolatry, and I'm going to avoid idolatry into my innermost man, the inside, in our soul. We can avoid idolatry and have a relationship with the Lord. Fourth thing that he talks about is this, nor sworn deceitfully. Our words in light of our actions, our words in light of our thoughts, intentions, and attitudes 
are a real good indication of where our hearts are truly at. Uh, seldom there is a sting like that of a deceptive tongue. You know that that's true. When, when, when you think back to whatever scenario that you had when somebody was deceiving you, that was actually the, the, the most painful part of it. It wasn't whatever they were up to or whatever they were trying to gain or whatever they were trying to get away with or whatever. That became less important. Let's all be honest. That became less important than the lie of deception. We raised our kids this way. If you've done something wrong, if you've done something sinful, tell us the truth because if you lie about it, you will be punished more for the lie than for the initial action. That was our enforcement into this principle that deceit, deceit then becomes the biggest thorn in a relationship. The biggest thorn in a situation is not the initial action. The, the deceit becomes the big thing. And it's a big thing to God. Being honest is a huge thing to God. Honesty is so important. We have to teach it. We have to, we have to raise our kids with this uh, idea that God looks down on our, our hearts. He looks down on our thoughts, intentions, our attitudes. He looks down on what we're doing, but He also looks down on how we're talking with people. All that David is sharing here is about access to God, actually under the Old Covenant. Uh, we have this blessing. We have the blessing of living under the New Covenant the New Testament covenant, where Jesus is our perfect pattern for accomplishing these four moral imperatives. Back to the idea that God governs the earth from a moral foundation. We have this awesome, awesome, awesome example in Jesus on how to live out. Because let's face it, we can't accomplish all these things that we've been talking about on our own, in our own power. Not possible. In Jesus, it's all possible. That's the awesome news. He came to rescue us from our own sin. He came to rescue us from our own slavery that we put ourselves in, in the bondage of sin, kind of the Old Testament picture of, of Egypt and coming out of Egypt and all that goes with that. He came to rescue us from that, and He came to rescue us. Then we'd have right relationship with God. He's the perfect example on how to follow and, and live these four points out of Psalms 24. What a blessing. Romans 3.23 tells, or 3.22 tells us that in Jesus, in Jesus, we too can have the righteousness that is required to ascend God's holy hill. In Jesus, we can have the righteousness that is required to ascend God's holy hill and have relationship with Him. What does that mean? How is that lived out? How does that change how you think? I'm going to tell you how it should change how you think. I'll tell you how it's changed how I've thought these years, is that it changes our identity. Jesus' righteousness in, 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 in our lives, overlaid over our lives because we trust in Him, changes our identity. So you're no longer, and Paul uses these words in, in 1 Corinthians, but so were some of you, all of these negative attributes, sinful attributes, you were like that, we were like that, but we're not left in the were, we're not left in the past tense. Our identity has changed so we can have a right relationship with God. Let me tell you, if you're a Christ follower, you're not a, you know, 
you should never see yourself and, and, and self-identify as a sinner in that sense. If you identify as a sinner, you don't understand what Jesus has done for you. That's the reality. God has called us out of that. That's all that past tense. Now, I'm not going to say we're not going to, you know, that sin is not going to be uh, around us. It's not going to, uh, it is going to be around us. It's going to tempt us. There's going to be times where we do fall to that temptation. The Word says we confess our sins because He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. But it should change our identity. It should change how we understand ourselves. It should change how you think about other people as well. Is their identity changed? Is their identity not changed? Right? And we can have a relationship kind of... It, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference inside of us and, and, and in our lives to understand that our righteousness, not based on our own good stuff, because it always falls short, based, like Romans 3 says, it's based on who Jesus is. So we too can have the righteousness that's required then and the identity that comes with that only in Christ. 1 John 1, 6 says it this way, really calls out the uh, potential hypocrisy that could be there. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's one of those, you know. If it's a struggle, that verse right there probably just slapped you in the face. Right? But that's the reality of where it is. Let's be honest with where it is. If, our, if, if, if we say that we have fellowship, if we say that we've ascended to, up God's hill, if we, if we say that we're you know, in Christ and have his righteousness... Uh, yet the reality is, is that we don't walk in that. That's not the reality of our lives. Then we lie and we don't practice the truth. And the reality of not practicing the truth is exactly what David was talking about, where we're uh, being deceitful. We might say that under the old covenant, the righteous man walks, uh, walk was the uh, kind of a precondition, as it were, for fellowship with God. Under the new covenant, a righteous walk is the result of the fellowship with God, founded on faith as we trust in Jesus. All right, let's move on. Under both covenants, though, I guess I want to follow up and say this. Under both covenants, God cares very much about the moral conduct of his people and of mankind, especially those who identify themselves and uh, us as Christ followers. As we identify ourselves uh, in that way, as his people, uh, our, our moral behavior is important to God. Let's not, let's not shy around with that at all. Your moral behavior, your, your thoughts and ideas are important to God. David goes on to sing, uh, because these really are songs, David goes on to sing about the benefits of knowing God in this way. And he says in verse 5, he says, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah, which means, think about it. Spend some time meditating on this idea. Those who are in right relationship receive blessing from the Lord. We receive our righteousness from God, the God of our salvation. 
The God of our salvation is who, who doles out His righteousness and Jesus taking our sin, taking our shame, taking all of that on Himself, taking it to the cross, and for those that trust in Him then, His perfect righteousness then is overlaid for us, changes who we are, changes where we're going. There's no other way to get off the planet. There's no other way to the resurrection. But through that, he receives a blessing. He receives a righteousness. This is Jacob, the generation of those that seek him. So there's blessing, there's righteousness, there's salvation. There's a family connection. That's this piece about Jacob. There's always, in the Old Testament, kind of this connection back to our identity being involved in a family for the Israelites. It was always about the family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's repeated you know, dozens, many dozen times throughout the Old Testament. It's all about being identified with a family. And we're identified with the family too. The family of God. It's a benefit. Take advantage of that benefit. Take advantage of the family connections that you have. Yet, today is a great time. Because there's a lot of family connections that get made before church, after church. It's almost hard to get you guys to settle down to start the service because, man, you guys are just making connections, talking with one another, having a great time. We're in here praying. It's a buzz of activity in this room. It's awesome. That's family connection. After the service, you're going to spend some time talking. You're going to spend some time uh, sharing with one another. There's times where it's people praying, people grabbing the office or up here at the altar, whatever, and you're ministering to one another. Family connection. There's a connection into the family in that way. It's awesome. It's a blessing. You need to continue it. Yesterday was an off, awesome opportunity to hang out and people coming and going. It's a fam, time for family connection. Take advantage of it. It's not just about Sunday. The people that you're relationally connected to, you'll always be a part of that family. So there's always kind of access there. In the same way as the body of Christ, as the family of God, we should have that type of understanding and access. Be that for one another. Be that for one another. Be a blessing. Be quick to help. Be quick to serve. Be the type of believer that somebody, if they need to, can call at three in the morning and say, I need help. Be that type of person. Make those type of memories with one another. Be there for one another. Another benefit is a desire to know more about God. We want to seek the Lord. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek Him. Not in a general sense, David's saying. Not in a you know, pilgrimage to a certain mountain, a certain city. Not like some people on the earth that, you know, that think that, well, if I go to the right spot at the right time and you know, hold my finger up in the air in the right way, or whatever they do. I don't even know what they do. It's not that kind of seek. It's very specific. Who seek the face of God. That's the type of believers that we're called to be. That's the type of believers that, that David was saying in, in this monster moment in the history of Israel, where the ark was coming in. Hey, we're, we're your family we're seeking after you, and we're not doing it in a general way, God. We want to seek your face. We want to know you. What he's saying is we want to know you personally. We want to know you personally. It's a face-to-face -face relationship in that way. 
Those of us that are married, you know your spouse's face. You've spent time together. You've talked with one another. You've, you've done life together. You've laughed together. You've cried together. You've worked together. You know your spouse's face. And you desire to have that face-to-face relationship with your spouse. It's intimate. And David is saying here, God, we want that intimate relationship with you. It's of the utmost importance to us. We want to seek you and we want to know you. So he goes on to say in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up. There's some songs. Lift up your heads, be lifted up. That's where that worship song, King of Glory, comes in. This is where it's from. The verse that it's from. Lift up your head, <clears throat> lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. So not only did they want to know him, they wanted an intimate relationship with, the, with God at the closest level. But they want to know him at the no shame level. That's how they that's this is this is a an increasing measure as David's writing it out. It's not a general no God, it's a specific no God. It's so specific that it's a personal I want to know God. And it goes here. It goes to the no shame level. How do I say that? What am I talking about? You all know that it's true. When your kids have done something that's wrong, they know that it's wrong. Maybe it was you when you were a kid. It was definitely me when I was a kid, and I knew that I was caught. My head was down. You know it's true because your heads have been down. Why? Because you have that sense of shame. You violated, you've violated the rules. You've violated the expectation. You've violated the relationship, whether it was with mom, dad, whoever, and you're shameful. I remember a specific instance. I like to tell them myself because now I think they're funny. And I've already been punished for this, so... Now I can look back with a little bit of fondness. Although at the time, <clears throat> I did not have any magazines to slide in my britches to avoid the spanking. Uh, my parents were really good friends with this uh, couple, Mel and Betty Price, who actually lived where my parents used to live. And we spent a lot of time there. And uh, pl- we spent time as kids running around. My parents spent a lot of time there talking and playing pinochle. But it was this one summer day or whatever, so we were bored, and uh, <clears throat> surprisingly there was no Nintendo, no Xbox, they, they didn't have, I don't know why, they didn't have any of those things. There was, <laughs> there was electricity, that's right, it was a benefit. Anyway, so, we, so <clears throat> me and my sisters, we decided we're just going to go out in the yard. They didn't have any kids, or they had kids, but they were all older, and so we're going to go out in the yard and play, and uh, we're going to play baseball. Because that's what kids did back then. They didn't do this. They did this. So uh, I decided that, oh, I'll, I'll grab the bat and I'll be up. And what possessed us to actually play baseball where you're hitting towards the house? I'm just telling you, kids, it's a bad idea. We got it. We're clear. And so I blasted one that went through the kitchen window and landed in the kitchen sink. And so... Uh, there was no 
My mom was a lot younger then. There was no reason to run. You could not get far enough away. She was going to hunt you down and find you. So it's the walk of shame. And I come in, and I, I knew. It's like, there's no reason to hide this. It was me, right? <clears throat> what God is calling us to is the type of relationship that is at the no-shame level. It's at the no-shame level. I'm not going to say we don't have moments. I'm not going to say there aren't times when we, then we fall to temptation and do something sinful. But we have a God that wants us to approach Him and say, will you please forgive me? Forgive me. Thank you for your forgiveness. That relationship is quickly then restored in that sense. When we're not in that mode, then we can operate in that no shame relationship. No shame. We can lift up our heads. A relationship where we want to know Him and desire His presence. The King of glory shall come in. Biblical scholars say that the ancient rabbinical sources tell us that in the Jewish, <clears throat> Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24 was always used in worship on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is our Sunday, that's today. So putting these facts together, we may assume that these were the words being recited by the temple priest at the very time that the Lord Jesus mounted a donkey. And what did he do? He ascended the rocky approach up to Jerusalem. While they were singing this, the man who died for us and who was uh, buried and rose again, who provides perfect pathway for people to enter into eternity, as we trust in Him, believe Him that He's done these things, He invites us into relationship, this King of glory comes in. Three connections to that idea of the King of Glory coming in. This was fulfilled in the Ark of the Covenant, obviously, as we talked about. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, 11 through 18, is kind of when this whole uh, psalm was uh, <clears throat> either was written or definitely written about. It was also fulfilled when the ascended Jesus entered into heaven, Acts 1, 9 through 10, Ephesians 1, 20. Uh, it's also fulfilled in this sense. It's fulfilled when an individual heart opens up to Jesus as King. It's fulfilled when we trust in Him. It's fulfilled as, as we surrender and yield to Christ in our lives. Saying, I, I, I've tried it all this way. That was terrible. It didn't work. I'm not better off. I've come to the reality that, that I can't leave this planet on my own takes a higher power, and there's not a, 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 a <clears throat> we talked about this this last Sunday, or last Monday night in, uh, in Iwana. All the bones of every other religious leader are still in the ground. Jesus is the one that fulfilled everything that he said, everything that was said about him by way of prophecy. His bones are not still in the ground. There's not a better story. There's not a bigger reality than what he's done 
for his own glory. The question is, has the king of glory come into us? Is he ruling our lives? Is it a mental, okay, but not a reality in our everyday life? Is he ruling our life, every aspect? Someone once asked Billy Graham this question. He said, if Christianity is valid, why is there so much evil in the world? To which Billy replied, with so much soap, why are there so many dirty people in the world? Christianity, like soap, must be personally applied. The truths, I will modify it this way and say the truths of who Jesus is have to be personally believed. Christianity, like soap, must be personally applied if it's to make a difference in our lives, Billy Graham went on to say. That, that's where this boils down to. It's not a general sense. It's not this, you know, far-out concept that, oh, yeah, God created the world and it doesn't really have any everyday bearing on our lives. It definitely does and definitely should. Repeat from the earlier refrain, uh, if you wonder why, <clears throat> as uh, the worship team gears up to come back up, uh, if you wonder why there's times where we repeat a chorus or a bridge, even a verse, uh, and is it big, biblical? I think it's biblical. Verse 8 of chapter 24 of Psalms goes on to say, Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty? It's kind of a repeated idea where David starts to add a few things. Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Then he says, as he said before, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors. It's a wonderful picture of David prompting Israel, be open to who God is. Be open and have a relationship with God. It doesn't happen when we're closed off, when the walls are thick, and we just simply say, no, not going to go there, not going to believe that, not going to trust in, in, in Him, not gonna, I'm just not going to go there. And then we, There's a lot of people. Maybe your own testimony was kind of that way. I, I just resisted God for so Many years looking back, I resisted God. Went a different direction. Right? Maybe it wasn't a resisting because there's these massive walls. Maybe it was a resisting because you were just on the run. Boom, I'm out of here. I'm not going to stick around. Not going to trust in what God can do. Not going not to, you know, keep doing what I've been doing or I, I'm not going to go there and, and I just can't take anymore. So you're on the run. I don't know if that's your story or not. But I hear David saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's time to lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors. The king of glory is going to come in. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The repeated refrain of God being king of glory, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. We can, we can overcome temptation if we're battling in sync with the, the God that's mighty in battle. Like to try to just do it in our own flesh, in our own way, try to do it without God in our lives, without the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, it's not going to happen. But here David's really laying out this case that God, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty 
in battle. It's amazing to think that the same God who calls us actually responds to our welcome as well. He welcomes the relationship with mankind, and it doesn't diminish His glory or His might. In fact, it is what <clears throat> makes it even more amazing that God desires to provide an avenue for the true and reverent worship of those that desire to follow Him. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for those that would desire to follow Him, for those that would respond to, to all that He is in their lives, would respond favorably and, and, and trust in Him. He's not looking for the robotic worship of the masses. He, he, that's not His nature. That's not His way. He's looking for those that would desire to worship Him, that would choose to worship Him, that would respond to His call in their lives. God who created everything is inviting and providing a pathway of relationship with Him, the King of glory. He's inviting us to repent, to turn from wickedness, to turn to Him, to seek His face, to fulfill our generational calling and seek Him with our whole heart, that kind of King of glory. And as James 4 says this, James says in, in chapter 4, he says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's one of the greatest, shortest, but greatest promises in the Bible. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Does God seem like He's a million miles away? Draw near to Him. Come close to God. He will draw near to you. Does it, does it seem like God's not in the current issue that you're going through? And it's like, where, where did He go? Just draw near to Him. He's going to draw near to you. Right? Now James goes on to kind of fillet out a whole bunch of other things. Purify your hearts. Talks about being double-minded. Talks about, you know, uh, forsaking this idea that we're just kind of floating on a cloud. Hey, get serious with who God is and where you are with Him. It's kind of my quick summary of James 4, but a simple promise to simply draw near to God and He will draw near to you. It's, I think, one of the most assuring verses in the whole of the Bible. David says that that same king of glory, the same king of glory that wants to draw near to you, that he's strong and mighty in your situation today. He's mighty in battle. He's battling for you. That's the type of king of glory he wants, that, that, that he is. And he wants you to realize he's that type of king of glory. As I asked in the beginning, the question that we take away as we head on out with the last song and head on out to barbecue and have fun during Mother's Day is are these truths the ruling reality of our lives? Are they what we're teaching our kids? Are they what we're talking about as couples? Are they what we're sharing with our friends and our neighbors? Are they what, are they what we're encouraging those people that don't know Christ, that are, have no relationship with Christ? Are they on, not only just on display, but are they the, the sweet uh, words of our lips as we encourage those people that are in our lives? Are they an aspect of how we, we interact with one another? Are these, uh, are these aspects uh, clearly identified in your identity as a Christ follower? I trust that they are. I believe that they are. I see the growth that is amongst us, not just in numbers, but in depth of spiritual insight.
in depth of your relationship with Christ as you guys keep trusting God in every situation and, and leaning on Him. And, and, and it's, it's a lot like a football game. Sometimes it's, you know, we're going to gain 10 yards and we're going to lose three on the next play. The losing three doesn't identify the gain. That's not it at all. Right? Who are we following? It's the King of glory. Let's worship Him with the last song. Would you stand with us, please?